So the key is how to leverage like exceptional content and exceptional insight and potentially go more niche. So you deliver more value to a smaller audience rather than go as broad and be as as focused on, on awareness building or top of the funnel building. And maybe be a bit more conservative and aim more towards bottom of the funnel and more low-hanging fruit to make sure that you're hitting your targets and KPIs. The B2B Marketing Exchange was created with one goal in mind, to help B2B practitioners across marketing and sales be better at their jobs. Now we're bringing the insights from the stage to your ears. These are the tips and tools you need to succeed. This is the B2B Marketing Exchange Podcast. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the B2B MX Podcast. This is Claudia. And I'm Alicia. And I'm so excited for this conversation that we are about to have with Oren Greenberg, who is the founder of Curve with a K. And it's a consultancy that's really focused on growth marketing. So this is going to be a great conversation. Oren, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And uh, really just to kick things off, why don't you tell us a little bit about Curve and the work you do every day? Sure. So we're a hybrid consultancy agency. We work with corporate clients as well as VC-backed scale-ups, mostly tech businesses in Europe. And we have some pretty exciting scale-ups at the moment, um, of whom I can't tell you about and some I can tell you about. Um, We do interesting work across B2B and B2C, primarily in digital marketing space. And I've been doing it for 17 years now, just digital marketing. Um, I remember when most people didn't even know what Google was back then. <laughs> yeah, so that's how long I've been around for. And yeah, I'm a non-exec director and an advisor, and I help businesses kind of all the way from the strategic level to deploying tactically and, and delivering return on investment and ROI on their marketing challenges. And yeah, I've done a bit of everything over the last 17 years. That's great. Yeah. And things have definitely changed (laughs) within that time that you've been in the digital marketing world. So I'm sure we'll hit on some of those points. And also just kind of the new context in which so many B2B organizations are tasked to operate in right now. That's obviously been an underlying topic point, I think, for all of our episodes this season for obvious reasons. But I want to kind of zero in on this concept of growth marketing. It's a big buzzword or buzz term in B2B right now. And because you're so focused on creating digital marketing strategies that help drive that growth, I do want to kind of get your take on what's happening in the B2B world right now. I actually had the chance to moderate a panel all around growth marketing, and it was interesting to see how the term has evolved, how the practices have evolved as a result of COVID-19 and and some of the shifts that we've had to make from a tactical standpoint. But would love your take on what you're seeing in the B2B realm specifically, what are the most critical shifts in this area, really just to kind of lay the the groundwork for the rest of our conversation. I'd say the main shifts that I've observed is kind of moving away from a focus on language around growth, more towards saving money and kind of cost effectiveness. And I think the reason is people are more hesitant and conservative because of uncertainty. And I think that's on a personal B2C level, like, you know, consumers and like working from home and the shift in the behavioral patterns of the day-to-day of not going to the office with the general economic implications, like for a low scheme here in the UK and the economic support. 
So I think overall there's uncertainty and that means people tend to be more conservative. A lot of businesses, obviously, it's very interesting because we're seeing extreme growth for some businesses that, you know, exponential growth and they can't cope with the volume. They need more infrastructure and process assistance. And then we're seeing other businesses are having a 95% revenue drop. So we're seeing like incredible volatility where obviously businesses are kind of more e-com related and their clients are e-com related, you know, if they're SaaS suppliers that support e-com, et cetera, they have, they're more in demand and obviously everything to do with kind of hospitality and restaurants and, and offline, they're struggling. It's a lot harder for them. So we're kind of seeing really interesting oscillations uh, are very extreme across the spectrum and therefore the strategies differ. But I'd say in general and average, people are more conservative. And then obviously the shift in B2B from events physical events and face-to-face meetings, which is, it's interesting because there's cultural implication. Like, you know, in the US, because it's geographically more spread out, people aren't going to go keep flying East Coast to West Coast to have those meetings. So they're more comfortable with closing larger deals over the phone and having a video call. But in Europe, you've got to meet face-to-face to build that trust and build a relationship. So now that's shifted because you can't do the face-to-face meeting anymore. And I think that's essentially accelerated the digital adoption rate you know some data says 5x like we've moved five years forward in digital adoption as a result of covid and i think that that's created massive complexity i think businesses that are more what's the best way to say it old school where their trust is low and they have a lot of barriers for control over their staff and they have a lot of security protocols in place they're really suffering because like suddenly they're losing control and they need a lot of trust to trust people now working from home, but they don't have the technology infrastructure for supporting this. And that's really difficult. So, and then the, the kind of new businesses that are new tech stack, more agile, more transparent, this kind of breed of SaaS businesses and businesses that are disrupting, not just technologically, but culturally how work is being done. They've probably adapted with greater agility and ease to the volatility and these rapid changes. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of different nuances across the board at different businesses because there's a lot of cultural components that really impact. But yeah, that's kind of a a top-level summary, I guess, in aggregate. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I mean, these days it all comes down to the specific company in mind because everybody is so different. But do you think the term just quote-unquote growth will be reframed or redefined? As in like, are we going to be seeing a greater emphasis on expanding existing partnerships and upselling and focusing more on retention in that sense? Yeah, for sure. I think most businesses, I think it's the way retention is changing as well. So the retention would be in terms of trying to renew a client on a 12-month contract, you're going to try and renew them on a three-month contract, realizing that the lack of confidence or lack of clarity and the feeling more insecure makes it harder for the customer to commit to a longer-term contract, which obviously the businesses need to lock in these contracts because they need to have security in terms of cash flow and consistency so they can project and have better control over their growth and how to invest in their own infrastructure and and servicing their clients to the best of their ability. So this shorter contract term is very difficult. I mean, it's in theory in in the buyer's advantage and not in the seller's advantage, but actually you could argue that the quality of service or delivery may take an impact. So it's not advantageous for either party. And so I definitely see more of a focus on retention, but I see the strategies and retention changing. Um, Same with cross-sell and upsell. I think there's more going to be more of a focus on that i mean generally i think great businesses know that you make more money 
from land and expand than you do from new customer acquisition. New customer acquisition is very expensive. So I think like very switched on companies are already very good at that or focused on it. I think a lot of businesses are still learning that and trying to figure that out. So I definitely think there will be a shift. We've definitely seen that in terms of total ad spend, right? Ad spend has, has dropped uh, massively on B2C and B2B. So we can see that there's less appetite for spending that money and driving that growth. So where's that focus going? Where's that money going? And I think people are being more conservative with projecting their numbers. But you know, once that's business that I'm working with, that they expected a drop and they've actually exceeded their numbers. So it's like, they didn't expect that. You know, it's like it's not like these other businesses who kind of went, oh, okay, this could be good for our business. These guys actually thought, well, you know, we're going to go downward and actually they have an uplift. And you're like, oh, wow, I didn't expect that. So it's quite interesting because then their attitude towards risk is actually increased rather than decreased. So I think it's very circumstantial depending on what they're doing. Awesome. That's great. And kind of looking at it through the lens of planning for next year, for 2021, a lot of organizations are heading towards the end of the calendar year right now. So what strategic questions do you think marketing teams and organizations need to ask and answer right now in terms of getting situated for the rest of the year and planning for 2021? Yeah, I think it's really around the growth numbers. Like if the expectation is to achieve the same growth rate or targets with a reduced budget, that's not feasible. So the questions are going to be, how am I going to achieve my Forex target with a quarter of that budget, the CPA, the conversion rates and the cost per click and the economics of acquisition just don't enable that. And like, I love this. Someone said to me the other day, uh, you know, you guys are in marketing, you should be creative with coming out with a solution. That's really an, an ineffective and non, non-supportive, non that's like a really useless suggestion. Like be creative is not a strategy. Be creative is like, you know, yeah, just like wishing business. We're not in the wishing business, we're in the money-making business and you got to have a plan that's robust. So you got to really think and ask yourself, where is my growth going to come from as a result of shifting behavior? And how has my strategy as a result been impacted? If I was very focused on events offline, how do I differentiate in what is now webinar wars, right? Like the amount of webinars and the adoption of digital channels as an attempt to generate interest, it's going to become progressively more competitive and saturated. As a result, the content produced needs to be of even higher quality to cut through because there's going to be a lot more noise. So the key is how to leverage like exceptional content and exceptional insight and potentially go more niche. So you deliver more value to a smaller audience rather than go as broad and be as as focused on, on awareness building or top of the funnel building and maybe be a bit more conservative and aim more towards bottom of the funnel and more low-hanging fruit to make sure that you're hitting your targets and KPIs. So I think the question is needs to be about the expectation and alignment internally, but also what tests do we need to run what opportunities do we need to invest in to make sure that we're hitting these readjusted goals as a result of the shift in the environment? Those are some great points. And I do want to dig into some of those elements that that you just brought up. But before I do, so you mentioned in your last response around how you had a client that kind of reassessed their goals and was actually able to exceed them just based on shifts in demand or, or market conditions. Do you think that's something that's going to be more widely adopted or is that something that's going to be largely 
dependent upon the category or industry that a company is in. So for example, a company that's in communication and collaboration, you know, they may want to ramp up net new engagement or building awareness, whereas other companies may be more focused on retention and loyalty driving practices. Is, is it largely depending on the industry or product category that a company is in to determine what needs to be adjusted? Yeah, massively. So recently we conducted some research where we looked at the traffic patterns to the entire marketing technology landscape, so 7,182 websites. And what we saw was that about 33% of all the websites are having positive growth, but the rest are kind of either in decline or shrinking over the last three years. And it's funny you mentioned collaboration because of the growth between 2019 and 2020, 92% of all the growth came from that one individual category, which is collaboration. And then I think that counts to like three, I can't remember in, in billions what it was, but it was like a significant amount of traffic. And if you look at who the players who gained, all the players, if I asked you who is everyone using to, to have phone calls now and video calls, and like you come up with five names, those companies would be the five names, like the Google Hangouts, the Zooms, and the Hopins, et cetera. And those have benefited as a result of the shift. And then other businesses have obviously taken a pounding and they've had to re-pivot. I've talked to two businesses recently, they had to re-pivot the entire proposition because it wiped out all of the revenue that they had managed to ramp up on recently and they had to re-pivot the entire proposition. So definitely category-specific, I think even business within category-specific and the valuation has to definitely be done on an individual basis. Okay, got it. So let's talk about how these strategic considerations and questions even kind of parlay into actual tactics. So you talked about content a little bit, and, and it's been really fascinating to see how the increased engagement or, or dependency on digital has led to an explosion in content demand for content, but in turn, content creation. You talked about the need to stand out, which I 100% agree. But you also talked about some of the barriers to entry or the barriers to adoption for some digital experiences or digital offerings, which I know is something that we've been thinking a lot about with our own virtual events. So, I mean, where do you think this marketing mix is going to go? How will it be evolved? Are we going to continue to see like an explosion in virtual events to replace face-to-face -face field marketing and in-person events? I mean, I know you don't have all the answers or a crystal ball. No one do really does right now, but just based on your conversations with your clients or, or even some of the research that you've done, I mean, how do you think this tactical mix is going to shake out? I think it's an interesting one because, you know, when you look at a lot of people and you ask them, are you happier working from home or working from the office? It's mixed, but I'd say primarily it seems like people favor working from home rather than the office, but the idea looks like it's going to be a mix. So I think the question is, what's the timeline? If the timeline, and it depends on the geography, you know, like in the US, we're still technically in the first wave of COVID, but here in Europe, we're just about to re-encounter the second wave. Yeah. And in some countries, they're kind of out of the wave and they're not really experiencing another wave. It's very mild. So it's very variable, I think, according to the geography and the culture of that country. But I'd say people want to have a higher quality life. And I think they want to move outside of living in big cities where they have more space and they don't have to endure a long commute. But I think it's really difficult only working from home. And the reason I'm kind of starting with human psychology is because I think it's the lifestyles of the employees 
and the customers and the adoption of new ways of working, which will shape the answer to the tactical execution. And you've got to think about what do people really want? And then it's almost like you don't want to wait until things are the way they are. You want to take a punt and risk on where you think things are going to go. And the best way to do that is to rely on fundamental principles of what do people want? What do people desire? And then you follow that into the future and you'll be able to kind of get a pretty good estimate and try and hit that before it gets there. So you're too late, but you can invest early enough to capitalize on that growth. So yeah, I definitely see people, I think people love events and they'll want to continue to pursue events. I think if COVID lasts for much longer than anticipated, one, two, three years, then it will take a very slow adoption of that events and offline activity to reemerge. But I think if COVID like ended, let's say abruptly by March, April worldwide, and everything went back to normal, I think would revert back relatively quickly to the way things were. So I think it just depends on how long it lasts for it to shape human behavior. But I think a lot of businesses now, they see the utility and benefit. And I think some businesses, they're, I don't know if better off for being purely digital, but they can operate as effectively. They're not as, as encumbered by it. And they're going to be comfortable with this new way of working. I mean, there's a lot of businesses already that advocate remote work that we know of. I think the Twitters of the world, et cetera, and the kind of digital first technology led businesses. I think it's the nature of their culture and the nature of their type of business. I think businesses that are very people centric and servicing people, I think, and you need that face to face, that emotional bond and that interaction. So I do think it's quite circumstantial on what type of B2B business you are and how you're going to adapt and which tactics you're going to adopt. But generally, yeah, I definitely see more of a digital alternative that are parallel to what was happening offline, trying to be translated online as best as possible. We see that now. We kind of see the uh, different event organizers trying to create virtual rooms where different people who are sponsoring it have their own room and you can come and talk to them in the virtual room as if you were in a conference. And it's definitely not the same experience because you're not getting a free massage, but it is um, it's, it's kind of an attempt to create this, a familiar or similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. Th- those are some really fantastic points, points that I was actually going to try and, and bring up and dig a little bit deeper into, because I know we as event producers, as community builders, content curators, one of our biggest challenges, I think, with going from in-person, even though we've done like webinar series in the past, that's kind of integral into our model and how we engage our community, but going from an in-person event where you're bringing like-minded people together, not just getting them in the same space, getting them face-to-face. You're essentially saying, okay, you're here. You need to focus on this. <laughs> and I think now, to your point around, we're all working from home. We're all maybe juggling a lot, feeling stretched, trying to do everything all at once. It's how do we create that experience that motivates people to stay engaged, to close out the email or close out their tasks for even just a couple of hours to fully engage. And I and I think we've seen some glimmers of progression and maybe even innovation in it as like as far as doing like those meeting room models that you were talking about, some things like virtual cooking classes. But that sometimes that takes time, right? It takes time, it takes thought, sometimes it takes budget. 
So it's been interesting to see, you know, which companies are pushing creative limits, which ones are trying to keep pace with the capabilities of some of the event platforms, because they're trying to provide the capabilities that we need too. So it's interesting to see all of the different pieces move on the chessboard, so to speak, because we're all just trying to keep up and to your point, figure out what's next. So it's definitely interesting to watch it in the event space specifically. So I do want to pivot a little bit into content. I'm a content person. I love content. I love seeing how companies push limits with content, you know, transform them into immersive campaigns. And we've been talking about this shift to digital. Personally, I do think that digital reliance will kind of maintain, maybe not see it. We may not see like the significant spikes that we saw at the start of the pandemic, but we are realizing that we can do some really creative, fun things through digital. So I think it's going to be a a fun space to watch. So I I do want to ask you, I mean, have you seen any ultra creative campaigns or activations recently? And, And I think we can kind of go into B2C here a little bit too, since I do think we can kind of learn from each other in that regard. Yeah, but any fun approaches that you've seen that that maybe lend themselves to the more the long-term view of what the future of digital marketing will likely look like as we get into 2021, maybe ideas that folks <laughs> can steal or possibly apply to their own business. Sure. So I think personalized video and video are definitely going to increase in the proliferation and comfort and people are going to become micro-broadcasters. And you can kind of see... LinkedIn's core attempt of implementing the Instagram stories type feature, which was probably not uh, not the best received. <laughs> but also, I think the quality of the content being produced is um, kind of eye-tearing. I think people aren't upskilled and clear on how to leverage that medium. I think it's interesting that they just ran that experiment and just went live and that everyone see, they produce content see, and it's not really the best suited. But I think the Vidyard examples of how they do personalized lead gen, I think it's pretty creative and interesting and fun. And one example that came about the other day that I was like, oh, this is really cool, was Typeform. They have this ask video where you're enhancing the chatbot experience because obviously with intercom and drift and chatbot providers kind of proliferating as a, as a category, with those two being category leaders, the video ask is a really interesting spin on that where you have pre-recorded videos and you have a, an interactive options that launch different videos. And they had this really cool campaign with this person like being a neighbor and getting locked out. And it asks you, kind of goes, it takes you through this journey of like, what do you do? Choose option A or option B. And they have different video snippets based on the different options that you as a user chose. And kind of showcases the power of the product in an interactive, highly engaging cinematic experience. And I think that this is, I can't remember the video hosting provider. It's not a Vimeo, it's like a variation. And they have their own TV channel, right? In terms of like episodic content that they're producing. And I think that this kind of hybrid of of higher end content, like aspiring, obviously not coming anywhere close to, but aspiring to Netflix, HBO quality, interactive, engaging content that is both has a component of, I think immersion is the word. It doesn't have to be entertaining because it can be very much about education or it can be very much about value, product specific value, but it will be immersive in the sense that it's multi-sensory and interactive to increase engagement and moving away from 
bland and functional towards something that's more hyper-personalized and taking users on individualized funnels and content that's more tailored to um, ICP, ideal customer profile level, which we can already see with account-based marketing. Account-based marketing is progressively going from generic messages to tailoring messages to different personas and different ideal customer-looking profiles through ads and landing pages. And I think that evolution of personalization will continue to increase because it's part of human nature. It's a a cognitive load. If you can remove friction and cognitive load from your prospect or your customer, you'll increase your conversion rate. And if you make it easier for them, so you do all the homework, so they need to do less homework to validate that you're the best solution for them, then there's obviously a commercial value to that. There's a remuneration on your investment. So I think all of those trends that are happening will, will start to interplay and engage. And obviously, I think AI will play a big key part of this. Like already, there's some really amazing, um, interesting examples of AI where it's producing ad copy that's better than what humans can produce. It's like producing exceptional ad copy. And it's pretty impressive how humans not writing this, the machine is, and you just put in a few words and it's giving you really well-written ad copy. All the way to this interesting, strange example where you've got these artificial intelligent influencers on Instagram that are generating more money than real Instagram influencers, like real human beings. It's almost kind of a weird notion that people are more engaged with an artificial animated character than they are with another human being who has feelings and thoughts and probably a family and a mortgage. So it's an interesting shift that we're starting to see with how, and I think this B2C, B2B, there will be a crossover. You know, there will be this kind of interesting a mix where people adopt ideas that are working in a B2C channel, like this Instagram influencer, instead of adapting that in B2B, at the very least to be perceived as differentiated and show that they're innovative or try new things out, they're edgy or experimental, at the very most, because it actually does work and does actually increase engagement and performance. And I think some companies will suss some of those strategies out and they will be unusual and interesting and will be like, oh, wow, I'd never have guessed that a, a B2B AI influencer would impact your conversion rate on your product page, but there we go. So that's what I see. I see different trends interplaying in this interesting cocktail of, of serendipity. But I think I, I do see AI in B2B playing a bigger part of that. That's actually fascinating. And honestly, like my head is spinning right now with all the different possibilities of all this and AI doing ad copy and the fact that these artificial influencers, I mean, it's just crazy to me. That's awesome. But going back to to your personalized video mention and just the fact that personalization is so important these days. And I love that it's now being incorporated into video and you could have that sort of choose your own adventure type of campaign and allow the buyer or the reader or viewer to kind of go through it on their own is fascinating. But do you also see that videos and things like that, maybe these kind of larger interactive pieces, do you see them also being repurposed more into smaller formats? How, how does the content, like, what does that look like for you in terms of content repurposing? Do you see it happening more often? Do you see these bigger pieces kind of being fleshed out into smaller bite-sized kind of elements? Yeah, that's already happening. I mean, I had two people today tag me on LinkedIn where they took the podcasts that I had done and they chopped the podcast into micro pieces of advice that I never even remember saying. And suddenly I'm listening to myself giving advice on a topic I can't even remember giving advice on. And I just thought that was so interesting that they took a podcast and they chopped it into this micro content. And I think that micro content 
will proliferate into the video format. It just, I think initially it will probably not be done as well. And progressively people will realize how to best adapt it. But yeah, I mean, a lot of businesses now, definitely larger businesses, their challenge is they have a lot of internal knowledge that isn't shared effectively internally. So the most immediate example is you have the knowledge base and you know, a lot of the businesses who are servicing this customer type are growing quite quickly because the pain in these organizations is quite large. They see the potential and not capitalizing on it. And then you can imagine how people are, the product guy is producing a video on a new feature and the video about the new feature gets distributed and then people in marketing and people in, in sales now see and engage in a much more immersive way. When in reality, right now, when an engineer releases a product update note, I don't think anyone internally in the business reads a 16-page document about all the product feature bugs and things that have been fixed because it's not clear. Like when you write a one-sentence line about the pixel optimization feature, you know, the marketing or salesperson doesn't understand what the impact of that commercially is going to be on their clients. So in a way, you can see how the product guy or the engineer literally having a little video snippet internally sending that out would be effective. And then you can easily see that already happening with social selling and how people are producing many personalized videos for prospects or existing customers and trying to increase engagement and, and make things more human and more palatable. Awesome. That's great. And I know a lot of this conversation, we know we discussed a few great best practices and tips and different content formats that B2B marketers should be paying attention to, right? But what about the don'ts? What should they not do? Spam people. Don't spam <laughs> people. Don't spam me, please. No, um, <laughs> I say that facetiously, but I still see a lot of, I get a lot of these cold, non-personalized emails. Mm -hmm. And yep. I think, yeah, as people are under pressure to hit their pipeline numbers, they have ramped up on volume. And there's really clear research from HubSpot showing the number of responses has dropped and the number of email volumes has increased. So, I mean... What does that tell you? It tells you people are desperately trying to achieve the result despite this change in circumstance. And I think that's problematic. Um, you got to be more creative or sharper or different in your approach, not only to differentiate, but also not to piss off your future prospects because you probably have a relatively finite total addressable market. And if you spam people with a 12 email sequence, that doesn't add value. You're probably not going to get the result that you want. And long term, this looks bad for the business as a whole. So I think the issue here really is, yeah, thinking about the value for your prospect and trying putting in the effort to personalize that and engage with them more. What not to do, not to spam, uh, what not to do, not to invest in producing as much content as you can for the sake of producing content without thinking about distribution. Don't do that. That's a very common mistake as well. And another common mistake not to do is don't try to be everywhere and don't try to be everything for everyone. So don't try and do every digital channel, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Pinterest. It's just, it's just madness. And definitely B2B. I mean, the probability of a B2B business getting growth from Pinterest is, is very, very unlikely. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't, so I think part of that sub tip is choose the right channel. So don't choose the wrong channels would be the piece of advice. Make sure you're selecting the channels where your audience lives on and make sure you're engaging that audience with content that is of interest to them in a way that highlights or showcases the value of your offering in a meaningful way. Don't focus on like the shallow 
the shallow marketing copy crap. Like our product is great. You should try us out. Like that's not telling me what your product is or why it's good or why I should use it. So really you got to focus on benefits and you got to problem you got to focus on the problems that you're solving. So don't focus just on benefits without describing what the solution is, because sometimes people go the other end. So they kind of go, if I just talk about features and not benefits, people don't understand the value. And if I, but then on the inverse, if you send an email talking about benefits, but you haven't told me what it is, I still don't have the context to understand what the solution is. So you do need to do both. So don't just do one of those, make sure you do both. Yeah, I don't know. I think the don't list is longer than the do list. So <laughs> um, I think there's more mistakes. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy. We live in a world of entropy where energy dissipates in multiple directions. And because of that, there's a lot more ways to go wrong than there are ways to go right. So I think when you figure out something that's working, double down on that. You don't have to keep investing so much energy in, in spreading yourself thin, trying lots of different new things out because your probability of failure and risk is very high. And there's a, a very high cost to experimenting. And even though you need to experiment to differentiate, if you experiment too much, you're not going to necessarily um, be capitalizing on your investment on what does work and doubling down on that. So you've got to allocate some of your budget and some of your mental power to trying new things out. But I wouldn't. I'd say no more than 10, 15, 20% of your total mental budget and your fiscal budget to try new things. I love that. That's great. And I mean, at the end of the day, quality over quantity reigns supreme, at least in my eyes, at least in, in all the conversations that I'm having. And even the conversation that we've had today, it's, it's really about the quality these days. But as we kind of think through 2021, Obviously, like Alicia mentioned, we don't have a crystal ball, so we don't know what's what's going to happen. But what is your one single hope for marketing in the coming year? I guess the truth is, if I was going all the zen about it, it's that marketeers are less stressed out. Because <laughs> obviously, there's marketing, but there is no marketing without people. And it's about, because I mentor and support so many different in-house marketeers on behalf of my clients, It's I see the emotional stress and I see the the worry and concerns that they have about hitting their goals and KPIs and driving value. So I guess why my hope is less marketeers are furloughed and that they have work and that they're engaged and doing work that they're passionate about and, and delivering results to their clients. So that's my my hope for the humankind and then marketeers in marketing. I guess for marketing as a whole, I guess I would love for there to be less reliance on monopolies, less reliance on like the Googles and Facebooks and LinkedIn's of the world, which dominate huge amounts of the spend and I'd like to see much higher quality content in marketing in terms of what that's being produced and, and being distributed and syndicated rather than quantity. And I think less noise and less crap and less LinkedIn statuses about how I wake up at five in the morning and I work 14 hours and I'm industrious <laughs> and therefore success comes to those who double that and some less of that crap and more tactical insight that shows me expertise and data-led um, content that enhances my life by educating me and teaching me things that I don't know. So that's what I, yeah, lots of hopes for the marketing uh, profession, I suppose. Preach. Really good stuff. There were some stuff that I, I feel like is just in my internal monologue and no one else feels or sees. So thank you for being so open about that. And I agree, especially around just everyone feeling stressed out, right? It's interesting because I feel like there are two very distinct camps. There are the ones that are like refreshed and energized, like now's the time for me to reset and do all these new things and learn all of this stuff. And then the other camp is like the folks who are stressed out that have new 
goals and revised budgets thrown at them. They still are being held to a specific standard, have certain expectations, goals they need to hit. And it's like, how do we do all of this and still be creative and stand out, right? I feel like more people are falling in that second bucket, but I'm hoping that things start to even out a little bit. I know I personally feel it some days, which kind of gives a good transition, I think, to our closing question for you. I mean, obviously, you work with so many companies. You help drive your business the direction of Curve. So obviously, you have your ear to the ground, so to speak, and see a lot of different sources of insight and and information. So to close things out, I mean, do you have any specific sites or or sources that you recommend for folks to maybe get more recommendations and ideas for their planning or or just any outlets that go beyond the wake up at 5 a.m. and exercise and and go through your to-do list a specific way and, and really help them get inspired. And this can be, you know, stuff that you help drive or third-party sources, we really want to kind of close out with some calls to action, so to speak. I'm going to shamelessly plug myself there. And say yeah, to plug away. Can, uh, <laughs> follow me on LinkedIn and engage. But that's like more expansively. There's a lot of really great, smart people out there who are producing great content on social. And the best way is engage with them and build those relationships. And I don't think reading more content or generic content is as good as building relationships with contemporaries and experts who can deliver value. And you need to have a mix of people in your network with complementary skills. And I had a session with one of the guys the other day, we did a swap and he's a conversion rate expert. And the first like freaking 10 minutes, he just blew me away because he's got like 10 years of compound day-to-day experience in CRO. And I'm pretty adept at that as a skill, but I'm nowhere near like the level of insight that he delivered. And I have that on everything, like Facebook ads, LinkedIn ads, Google ads, SEO, PPC, et cetera. And what you want to do is you want to have a gut floor in your gut. You want to have like a variety so you're very healthy as an organism. And the same comes with your knowledge sources and the people. But I, I just prioritize network and people over sources to read and consume because I think there's a, it's just a bit too generic. That's a problem with it. And you don't know if what you're reading is relevant to you or not. And even if it's B2B specific, is it enterprise B2B or is it SaaS B2B where it's like low value order, large volume? Because like a MailChimp business model is not the same as a Salesforce business model. They're very, very different. They're both B2B and they're both SaaS and they're both technology and they both serve businesses, but they're just very different with their customer type and their go-to-market. And if you're reading the one blog post when you're with the other business type, you're going to go in the very wrong direction. Yep. Some great points there. And I think to your point, there has been such an emphasis on networking and community building. That's why I think those virtual roundtables or virtual happy hours are so fun. Like when they're structured correctly, right? Like it's a it's a more open conversation for people to just connect and talk about things that they're experiencing, their challenges, and maybe share some ideas. And I think more than ever, people are willing and excited to do that. So that's one, I guess, little bright spot that's come out of this whole situation that I hope will continue in the future. This has been a fantastic conversation. Again, so many great perspectives, so many great nuggets of wisdom that we can't wait to reuse, repurpose, and reshare across all of our platforms. So thank you again so much for taking the time out to join us today. We really appreciate it. 
And as always, everyone out there, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the B2BMX podcast. If you have any feedback for us on this episode, or if you have a question for Oren and you want to get connected, of course, feel free to do so directly with him on LinkedIn, or feel free to drop us a line at B2BMX on Twitter. We can make those connections for you. And maybe we can even have Oren back as as we get into the new year and see how some of these trends uh, shake out. So thanks again, everyone. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. We have so many other great conversations to come with experts just like Lauren. So if you do subscribe, you'll get an alert when new episodes are available. Thanks. And we'll see you next time. Take care, everyone.